All right. Well, we'll 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 try to get started, even though it uh, we haven't left much time for people to get over here. But somebody went long in the service, and so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to uh, to adjust uh, to their sins over here on this side. Um, let me open us with prayer, and then we'll jump into uh, verses four to. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together like this around your words, to your purposes. Lord, and as we noted last week, we pray that you would give us an understanding of uh, the book of Revelation that would give it a tendency to train us uh, in godliness. For that is clearly John's purpose as well it was Paul's purpose and as well he taught Timothy to make it his purpose. It's the purpose of Bible reading. It's the purpose of Bible studies. It's the purpose of preaching uh, that we would be trained in godliness unto our own salvation, unto our own sanctification, unto our own usefulness. In, uh, in the world and that we would survive by means of that uh, this very spiritually dangerous, deadly world that uh, John will be painting for us as we move through uh, this book. But we thank you, especially in our text for this morning, for the flip side of that as we are reminded of what a God-saturated place the world actually is, and how an understanding of anything that's true will be linked to you and your purposes, to your person, to your being, And Lord, may we be people who learn to think that way and live from that confidence. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll have a a, a little bit of a review automatically uh, in this text because he comes back to John uh, naming himself uh, as the author in verse... Four, John, to the seven churches, to those in Asia, grace and peace to you. Um, so, by way of introduction, um, again, John, is the author named, is taken by many, and I, I would side with those to be the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, the same John who wrote the epistles, the John that you meet at the end of John 21, where Peter turns around and he's walking with Jesus and says, what about this guy? Um, And Jesus says, well, if I say that he should remain until the end, what's that to you? You know, you don't worry about him. You follow me. Um, but that would have been the John. What about this guy? 
Um, and uh, Jesus, uh, uh, if he had tapped in uh, to infinite knowledge, he will say, well, he will eventually uh, write um, uh, quite a bit of the New Testament, and he'll write a book called uh, The Revelation of Jesus Christ from the Isle of Patmos. Uh, that's what he'll do. Um, and that's what this is. Um, so the revelation of Jesus Christ comes through John, the apostle, and he writes it to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which as we mentioned last week, you know, in broad ways of looking at the book of Revelation, you know, there's a, uh, what, what they call a preterist way, a, a view, which I don't know why we use that term since nobody knows what it means. Basically, a focus on what was going on at the moment in the first century, so that the bulk of what John refers to in the entire book was happening there and now in the first century. And if you're a strong uh, preterist, that was basically the end of the whole thing. It's all there. uh, And all that talk about the end of the world really just referred to the destruction of Jerusalem. And and, and there you have it. He's not really saying anything about uh, the end of the age and all of those things, which I find to be a tr- a, basically an impossible way to read uh, the whole book. But what the preterist way of viewing things does remind us of is there really are seven churches there in Asia Minor in the first century. And he really has them in mind. And he's really speaking to the actual situation that they have on the ground. And so to that degree, it is what the preterists claim. It is written to those churches in the first century. However, having said that, it is certainly not an accident that there are seven of them Nor is it an accident that the first and the last of them um, both have nice things you can say about them and significant challenges that you can say about them. Hence the idealist view where, yes, these are letters, this letter is written to these seven churches speaking to them about their first, situ- their first century situation, really doing that. But they're also meant to speak to the church all over the place in the first century and to the church down through the ages. Now, most of what it has to say to us, however, it says through them through what was going on there in the first century. They give the clues to how Christ deals with such situations 
And it won't be ever hard to figure out how their situation uh, parallels ours, for as it says repeatedly in the, um, well, in, in wisdom literature, the idea, but the book of Ecclesiastes in particular, there is nothing new under the sun. There really is nothing new under the sun. People in the first century are an awful lot like people in the 21st century, and vice versa. Uh, That is the way it is. Uh, Now, the ultimate author of the book of Revelation is... the one who is the seven spirits and Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And when you throw those together, uh, then you have the triune God that we just sang the doxology uh, with reference to. Um, So what what we're going to do this morning is just walk through um, the ultimate author of the letter. Uh, Note the centrality of Jesus, who is the Christ. Uh, Note the end of the story, and then come back and note the majesty of God. Uh, uh, You know, the the open, this this paragraph would be a great, well, it is this kind of thing that the Presbyterians would put in the Westminster Confession under uh, question and answer one. What is the chief end of man? God, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, verse 8 closes off on the glorify God note uh, being played uh, with great clarity. Uh, uh, and so, as we've already discussed, you know, John's the provisional author, is the apostle, author of the Gospels, um, these seven churches, but the ultimate author, the ultimate author, um, middle of verse 4. So grace, mercy, and peace, or grace to you in peace from the one who is, from the one who was, and from the one who is coming, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne God. Now, the informing theology behind this language is not at all in doubt. Some of the allusions that John makes to the Old Testament are questionable, and people argue back and forth about whether they're really there or not. They don't argue at all about this one. Uh, this one is clearly there, centrally there. Um, and really quite strikingly there. And if you are a whole Bible sort of systematic theologian sort of person, John uh, cuts through and throws his weight behind a debate that is had among Old Testament scholars all the time about, so what's the real sense in Exodus 3.14, when Moses writes, 
I am that I am. I am has sent me to you. Uh, you say, well, and they, and they three or four views. They argue back and forth about those three views. Well, John, John follows the translation of the Septuagint. And he does so clearly. And so he lays down his answer to that debate. Now, Old Testament scholars don't like to depend upon the New Testament scholars to tell them what their text means. And so they said, well, you can't do that. That's just reading John back into the Old Testament, and he may or may not be right. But if you're an evangelical, right, and you believe that John was led by the Holy Spirit, then you think John is certainly right. Right? It's a presupposition of yours that John is certainly right. And if that's the case, uh, then uh, this, is how, this is how it's put in the Septuagint. And as I say, John is lifting this language right out of Exodus 3.14 in the Septuagint. The context, you remember, is God has called Moses, he's supposed to go tell the sons of Israel that he is going to take them out of Egypt. He's not so sure that they will want to listen to him. God told, tells him he's going to go, put pressure on him to go. Now he's sort of warming to the idea and says, well, if I do go and I go there, what? And, and they ask me, who's really sending you? What's his name? What will I tell them? And so that's where you pick it up. Verse 13, And Moses said to God, Behold, I shall come to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they shall ask me, What is the name belonging to him? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am the one who is. Ego eimi ha'on. And here, John just call, refers to God as ha'on. The one who is. The one who is. God is the one who just simply and absolutely is. I've mentioned many times, um, and, and you have all, you had children all had conversations uh, like this. Uh, my my oldest daughter was verbal, very young. She's still quite verbal um, um, in middle age. Uh, but uh, she was the only child still. She was very verbal by the time she was two years old. She would never stop talking. And so after supper uh, at night, the most pleasant thing you could do with her 
was to just go for a walk with her. We lived on a gravel road, and we were about a third of a mile from Highway 3 in Iowa. And so we'd take her out, and we'd walk out to the road, and then we'd walk down the road, because after supper, the farmers have largely quit moving around. They are where they are for chores or whatever. And so there's almost nothing on that road between 6 and 7. Maybe two cars would go by in the whole time. We would walk down there and back, and we would love to play this little game. She would ask me questions, one after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next, everything she could see. Who made the grass? Right? God did. Who made the clouds? God did. Who made the trees? You know, she'd look around the birds. We'd go, I mean, we would go to, uh, you know, and then the more complicated one, the fence posts. Well... Uh, you know, so then we got into man created in the image of God and all of that and steel. And, uh, uh, but ultimately, it always worked back to God. And you know, it doesn't take a kid very long before then they ask the obvious question. Okay, but where did God come from? And here's the answer. Oh, God simply and absolutely is. He didn't come from anywhere. He has always been. He is simply the one who is. He is where everything that exists comes from. Because, of course... Exodus 3.14 also takes place in a context, right? It takes place in the context, as Moses says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're out of the context of the book of Genesis. Yes, they certainly are. They're central to the book of Genesis. Chapters 12 to 50, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But where does the universe come from according to the book of Genesis? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, the one who is and who was and who is to come said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, Practically speaking, just think about the implications of that for a moment. The name uh, fits the first example I'm going to use, the second one only by implication. But uh, Exodus 3.14 is the explanation of the name Yahweh. I am that I am, sent me to you. you And then he introduces the name Yahweh as his covenant name. Um, Psalm 23 Psalm 23 I've mentioned to you many times Um, not many of the major translations translate it this way though again the Septuagint does the Septuagint does the Septuagint 
translates the opening little phrase as a Greek translation of the Hebrew text of Psalm 23 with the present participle with the singular ending on it. Yahweh is the one shepherding me. That's how it opens, Psalm 23. Yahweh is the one shepherding me. Now you talk about a powerful way to think about your life. The one who is and who was and who is to come. He's the one shepherding me. He's the one walking me through whatever the circumstances are that I'm in. He's the one who has sent me these difficult circumstances, these trying circumstances, these disappointing circumstances. But he's the one, the one who is and who was and who is to come, is the one shepherding me. That's what David believed. That's what David thought about his life. That's how you and I are supposed to think about our lives. Now the second reference I have there doesn't use Elohim. I referred to this just last uh, Wednesday night when we were in uh, Psalm 4 for a parallel passage. But Psalm 56, 9 has this little phrase in it. This I know, and he uses the Hebrew Elohim this time, this I know that God is for me. (laughs) That's a striking phrase. Of course, Paul uses it famously in Romans 8.31. If God be for us, who can be against us? But again, to use John's language here, This I know, that the one who is and who was and who is to come is for me. If you go through life thinking that way, you'll be less easily tipped over. You'll be less easily intimidated. You'll be less easily discouraged. Uh, You'll less easily give up. And it's simply the biblical way to think. It's simply how you and I ought to think. It's the implication of what John says here. Who's writing to us? The one who is. And who was? And who is to come? The seven spirits who are before the throne of God. Seven spirits. Well, this time, he's certainly, again, nobody wonders whether or not this is what's in the back of his mind. If you have your Bible, Zechariah 4, 1 to 6. Minor prophet Zechariah 4, 1 to 6. And the angel talked with me and came and 
woke me. Like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, behold, I see a lampstand all of gold and a bowl on the top of it. And seven lamps on it with seven lips on which the lamps that are on it on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Seven lamps, seven bowls. Well, what do they mean? They mean my spirit. By the power of the spirit. You will be who you need to be and you will do what you have to do and you will walk through these days not by might but by my spirit. John just making a reference there, picking that up from the one who is and who was from the seven spirits. Spirits by whose might. people of God are served and well and looked after and taken care of. And then Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Jesus Christ, whom you can absolutely rely upon. Jesus Christ. Um, We're going to pass over this one fairly quickly because we're going to go on. And he pauses on on Jesus in just a second. Um, But Um, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. He tells you the absolute truth about things, about you and about God and about the future and about about everything. To have a word from Christ is to just have an ultimate word. He's the faithful witness. You simply believe Jesus. You simply go with what Jesus says. That's how Christians think. That's the power of the Christian life. I go with Jesus. I trust Jesus. I rest in Jesus' word. It's who I am. It's what I do. It's what I'm about. Um, And to be attached to him is really a remarkable thing. He's the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn. Well, if you're the, if, if you're the firstborn, that means you're the primary heir. You're the primary heir. So you, uh, the, father's, the father's stuff largely passes to you. So what's the father's stuff in this case? Well, the author of Hebrews says, oh, well, the father's stuff would be Everything. Hebrews 1, 2. He's the heir of all things. Now think about, think about that for a moment. So he's the heir of all things. 
He's the firstborn from the dead. And Paul tells us dozens of times, oh, and by the way, you as a Christian, you're in Christ. You're in him. All that's his is yours. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, we are fellow heirs with Christ. What does he inherit? Everything. Specifically in the book of Revelation, new heavens and a new earth. Whoa. That's who's writing to us. Heir of all things, firstborn from the dead. Now, we don't have time to go, as we'll have time to go into it as we go through, but I, I do want to mention it because this is, the, again, one of the early times it comes up. Uh, you know, this is a reference to his resurrection. And in New Testament theology and in New Testament thinking, see, this, this, is, the, this is all around this, the rest of the New Testament, including the rest of the book of Revelation, is really founded. Namely, that we live in what can be called the last days, right? Why? Well, because the resurrection has already happened in the person of Jesus. Resurrection has already arrived. Now, I'm not resurrected yet. And the dead in Christ aren't resurrected yet. But Christ is already resurrected. And ascended to heaven. And so, the king, the messianic king, the eternal king, is already on the throne. The resurrected king is already in place. And in that sense, the last days have already arrived. The king is in place. But they're not consummated. The new heaven and earth aren't here. Jesus' enemies aren't all trampled under his feet yet. No, none of that has happened yet. But he's already on the throne. And all of that is definitely going to happen. And that's all linked into this comment. He's the firstborn from the dead. Resurrection life is already here. The eternal king is already in place. And in these first century people, it's really important for them to know the eternal king is already in place. And by the way, it ain't the Roman Empire. And it ain't the Roman emperor, regardless of what he says. And so don't you go talking like it might be. And don't you go fitting in to them, urging you to talk that way, even if you don't quite really believe it. You hold your allegiance to the actual king, the firstborn from the dead, who is Jesus. And he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, just the, the ironies of this in the first century and then the ironies of this now. So in the first century, how would a Roman emperor think of Jesus? Just as a random name attached to a sect out of these problematic religious people in the Middle East, the Hebrews, the Jews, 
They are a pain in the neck. And in a few years, he's going to teach them a lesson. And he's going to flatten Jerusalem to the ground. End their temple to the ground. And so Jesus is simply an offshoot of this group of people whose temple I can flatten to the ground anytime I want. And, 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 and the guy in charge in 8070 is going to say, I want now. And it happens. You hear what John is saying. We're right about when this is written. That happened 20 years earlier. John is saying, Jesus is ruler over that guy. Then and now and forever. They all answer to him. Our political leaders don't worry about what God says, what Jesus says about anything. It's clear. They don't. They could not possibly make it plainer. They don't care. Xi Jinping, he doesn't care what Jesus thinks about anything. He doesn't care. Vladimir Putin doesn't care. Well, they don't care. That's a little that's just, just a little religious sideshow, Jesus. And John is simply saying to us, Don't you believe it? That's not reality. Reality is Jesus has already experienced resurrection and he's ascended and he's the king. And he's the king over all the other kings, and they will know it. Eventually, they'll all know it. And you need to know it and remember it now. That's the world you actually live in. And that's how you are to think about the world that you live in. Now, the centrality of Jesus, who is the Christ, verses 5b and 6. So back to Revelation 1. This, again, is just really, really striking, striking, massively encouraging language um, in the middle of verse 5. Um, speaking of Jesus, as if he, he pauses after he just introduced Jesus as faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, ascended up, he's on the throne. Slight little break. And now we're going to pause on what he's already, what he's doing and what he's already accomplished. To the one who is loving us, And who 
released us from our sins by his blood. And he made us a kingdom, priests to God and to his Father. To him be glory and strength forever and ever. Amen. Not many commentaries note this, and I'm a little surprised that they don't, because it's, I actually heard it um, 30 years ago in a, uh, in a sermon on the book of Revelation by uh, a professor I had at uh, Trinity, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, who uh, actually spent all of his career at Dallas Theological Seminary and was a standard bearer there, and kind of got drummed out near the end of his career because over the years, uh, Dr. Johnson became increasingly Calvinistic and the colleagues around him, not increasingly so, and so eventually he he sort of made uh, himself a bit of a problem and was nicely asked to consider maybe finding a post elsewhere and what a blessing that was for us at Trinity, because then he started to come up there three days a week. He was already like 65 years old, and he served up there until he was 70, and then they mandatorily retired him out. But his, he has a bunch of sermons online, uh, and, uh, and, and these were really old. I don't know what year they came out. I, I think it may be in the 70s. But he refers to the fact that this is the only place anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus is said to love his people in the present tense. It's almost always in the aorist or the, uh, usually in the aorist tense, just as a global, like, this, this is his settled attitude. But here, here and here alone, it's a present participle. And he is the one Loving us. And then he shifts tenses as he moves to the next participle to the aorist. Who loosed us from our sins. That is, that's done. That's finished. Um, He already accomplished that on the cross. Jesus is loving us. In the deepest sense, right, that's what makes the children's song so wonderful. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Well, here, present tense participle, to the one loving us, who released us from our sins by his blood, um, Sin is a serious, serious, serious problem. Eternal consequences. Paul put the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. But again, just think of it in terms of our culture. We live in a culture where we don't worry about sin at all. In fact, there's virtually nothing that you should be able to publicly even label a sin. 
If you label anything a sin, you're a judgmental fool, fundamentalist, backward, bigoted in any number of ways. But again, that's not, that's not reality. In reality, the wages of sin is death. That's reality. People are in serious, serious trouble. And at conscience level, they, they sort of know it. Right? I referred to her last week again, but so why? You know, why is Susan Sontag so afraid to die? I can tell you what it wasn't. That was not fear motivated by the fear of non-existence. What if I just go to sleep and never wake up? No. That's not what she was afraid of. She was afraid of what Shakespeare talked about in Hamlet, right? As he goes through his most famous passage in the one of the most fast, you know, famous passages in the play. To be or not to be, that's the question. Do I commit suicide or not? It can be done with a lot of problems if I can just end it, or just be done with them. But then he asks himself, but... What if the voice in the back of my head has some reality to it? Because that voice says, I don't think you will be done. I think you'll answer for your life. And what if in that realm you can't possibly get out of it? Which, of course, is precisely what Christianity said. And Shakespeare has this in the back of his mind. And his character has it in the back of his mind. He says, that's the catch. What if dreams should come? What, that's conscience. Everybody knows, actually, sin is a real problem. And they have it. And they just try not to think about it. But Christians can think about it because we already know of the solution to it. He released us from our sins by his blood. I'm a sinner, I'm an inexcusable sinner. And I have nothing to fear because of Jesus who released me by his blood. What an amazing thing. That's who's central to this revelation, Jesus Christ, the one loving us, the one who released us from our sins by his blood. He made us a kingdom of priests. He fulfilled Exodus 
19, 6. Exodus 19, 6 closes with a little word about becoming a kingdom of priests. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And he made us. He fulfilled God's promise to ancient Israel in us. We are this kingdom of priests. We reign with Christ. Again, these are complicated things and you know, you, you're going to have to spend a long time in the book of Revelation to pause on these. Uh, but there's a sense in which, of course, we reign eventually and someday, but we, we already reign. So in what sense do you already reign? You already reign in that you, you, we can make all kinds of pronouncements on behalf of the king, right? You, you, you can say, you know what, President Biden, you are going to regret your position on abortion like you can't even imagine. The king is coming for you. That's how Christians talk. Now, if you're there with him, you'd say it respectfully. He's coming for you, Mr. President. He's coming for you. But you're answering to him. Yeah, you can pretend now. You can pretend now that all of your Roman Catholicism is just a little sideshow that you use at campaign time and that there's nothing to be in this. So, you know, officially you're an anti-Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic, and you don't worry about that at all because you're just watching the polls. There's no reality in those polls, Mr. President. The reality is Jesus is the king. I'm a servant of the king, I'm just telling you. He's the king. And you're answering to him. Everybody's answering to him. And your only hope is to be devoted to him. And apart from him, there is no hope at all. Xi Jinping in China, you won't be an atheist forever. You're not going to be an atheist forever. You will not. You're going to meet the king. It's already on the throne. It's already done. Um, the doxology will just pass over, but there's definitely a reference here. If you can look it up later, First Chronicles 29, 11 is certainly in the back of his mind. Verse, verse 7, this is where it's really unfortunate that we're going to pass over this so quickly, but we... We are, because we'll, we'll get so many chances to come back to it, as you can see there. This is the first time that, the, that John makes reference to uh, a Daniel 7.13, but he's going to make 31 references to it. So you know, if you want to go home and look up a verse that plays a massive role in the book of Revelation, uh, Daniel 7.13 is that verse. He's going to come back. To Daniel 7.13, 31 times. 
Uh, uh, so it's really, 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 really central. So here's him uh, just touching on it here. Behold, he comes with the clouds. See, this is essentially the warning to President Biden and Xi Jinping. Behold, he comes with the clouds, the king. And every eye shall see him. But now he goes and switches over and starts talking about you and me and the people of God uh, in a positive way, uh, which is uh, 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 the other text uh, alongside of that is Zechariah 12.10. And they'll look on him whom they have pierced and they'll mourn over him. Now, scholars argue back and forth about whether this is uh, the mourning of those who are, are on the wrong side of the king at the end of the age. But in the context of Zechariah 12, it's not. In the context of Zechariah 12, it's the godly who mourned that the king had to suffer at all. So they pierced for my transgressions, and I am responsible and mourn that fact since it can be taken that way, it probably should. And that'll be the case of all for all the tribes of the earth, which again really throws it heavily, heavily, heavily in the direction of believers because that's a reference to Genesis 12.3. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. But now we, we, we're, we're out of time, so we'll come to the you know, the slam-bang finish of verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, and back to this language again, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now just to, to give a sense, uh, just as we close, of where we live, and I referred to it earlier, but I decided to bump it down to the end. I've referred to it many times down through the years. But our, our own society, you know, um, European American society, it's been a generation already now since uh, public television um, you know, produced the Cosmos series. Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan. Now, Carl Sagan opens Cosmos series by ripping off language from John. Cleverly so, effectively so, right? So here's John, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What did Sagan say? Sagan said, the Cosmos is all that there ever is, was, or ever will be. The ultimate statement of secularism. The cosmos is what is. The cosmos is what was. And the cosmos, the material universe is the only thing that ever will be. That's clever. 
That's clever. Now, of course, it's only clever if you're on board with it and don't think about it at all. Because if you think about it at all, it just becomes absurd instantly. Well, come on, no, this is our official position. Well, yeah, it is. This is academia in America right now. I mean, that, you know, that, that, that's old hat. But, but the, the, the worldview of Carl Sagan is the worldview of the University of Chicago. And I mean, you just, on you go. That's, that, 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 is where, that is where it's at. That is where it's at. But, but here's, the, here's the trouble. In that view, in that view, what is there? Well, there's just stuff. There's just stuff. And so what are you? Well, you're just stuff. I mean, you're evolutionary stuff. You, know, you evolve for no reason at all. And I mean, yep, you're, you're... But how do you know? How did we figure out that we were evolutionary stuff? Oh, well, we figured it out by, by some studies. Uh, well, how did we do those studies? Well, we thought about things. Yes, but what are our thoughts in this model of things? Well, our thoughts are just stuff moving around. That's all they can be. They're just stuff moving around. Nobody, nobody, nobody can live 15 seconds believing that that's true of them, of their thinking. You can't function as if that's true of your thinking. You can't. My thoughts are all random. They're just a material product. I'm teaching Sunday school this morning because my genes taught Sunday school this morning. (laughs) That's why. I prepared in advance because my genes prepare things in advance sometimes. You can't think that way. So what's the alternative explanation? Oh, well, we go like this. Well, Mr. Sagan, these are very interesting theories and very cleverly put, which is what might come from somebody who was created in the image of God and in rebellion and took the incredible gifts that God has given you and placed inside you and, 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 and used them in his disservice to the best of your ability, um, and who used all your creative talents in the best of your ability to advance vice and, and, uh, and, and disillusion and to assuage your own conscience. And we see this happening all around. Well, it all makes perfect sense. For people created in the image of God. For people who are able to think God's thoughts after him. For people with a direct connection with the one who simply and absolutely is. 
and it created an ordered universe, unbelievably ordered. Gave us unbelievably ordered bodies. At the end of the week, I'm going to go see somebody created in the image of God tell me what's going on with my blood. <laughs> they'll draw some out, they'll take a look at it, and then they'll bring me a report. Here's what's going on with you. Like, whoa! Whoa! That's image... I can't possibly think about it this way. Yeah, I'm going to go see Dr. Eklund and find out what the molecular structure of his brain thinks in relation to my blood. That would be absurd. Yes, it certainly would. And those are the two, those are the two big things on the stage. The universe, the cosmos is all there is or ever was or ever will be. Or, or, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The one who is, and who was, and who is to come. The Almighty. Oh, and by the way, if you're mine, and I'm the one shepherding you, through the month of September, the year of our Lord, 2023. That's an amazing place to live. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to have words from the one who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, is mediated through John to us. Oh, Lord, may we live in the light of who you are today and in the coming week. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.